Child poverty is our primary election topic today. Wab Canoe, leader of the NDP, joined us live. On the subject of child poverty, Harvest Manitoba joined us. They have a special event planned next month to honor the former executive director of what was then Winnipeg Harvest, David Northcott. For our small town salute, we followed up on something one of our listeners told us about a couple of weeks back, the Suris Agate Pits. We learned more from the great and powerful Wazoo. We had a wonderful chat with the new educator in residence at the Canadian Museum for Human Rights to highlight two SLGBTQIA plus issues and histories. And do you have any home remedies? I'm Brett McGarry, alongside Greg Mackling and Loren McNabb. We are Mackling, McGarry and McNabb. And this is the Thursday, September 14th podcast for The Start. It is Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb, and I snuck out of here just after 10.30 yesterday, and seems I just missed the insanity that happened in downtown Winnipeg yesterday. You know, I think almost every day, if not every day, it's close. We look out the window in one direction or another, and you see some sort of fire, you know, in different parts of Winnipeg, maybe on the horizon. Sometimes it's stubble burning, all sorts of things. When someone said there was a fire, maybe at the old Windsor Hotel, you know, I kind of sat at my desk and didn't think anything of it. And then, I don't know, Brett, Greg, maybe it was five minutes later, it, we were, the smoke kept wafting in and around the building up here on the 30th floor. We're, at, we're right at Portage of Maine. That hotel is what, five blocks away, maybe six blocks. And I couldn't get over the smoke that was coming and then the smell. And so I, what I've been thinking about when you consider this fire and its impact is that for years we've been talking about vacant buildings and the impact on communities. But I think many of us might have just been like, well, I don't, I've never had that happen on my street. I've never had a fire. I've never had a building sit there abandoned and boarded up. So it doesn't really bug me. Well, guess what? That tens of thousands of people were impacted by that fire yesterday. It was incredible. If it wasn't for the concern of a fire catching and spreading to neighboring buildings, Greg, that vacant building fire sent people home because of the toxicity toxicity of that smoke. Yeah, of course, the historic Windsor Hotel, as you probably know by now, what was so overwhelming about it, in addition to what you said and covered off there, Loren, is that where you and I sit, where the three of us have our desks, we face straight up Main Street, north Main. The opposite side. The yeah. opposite side of the building. And so all of a sudden... Here's smoke. You could see it coming basically straight up Main Street, straight through Portage and Main. And the smoke was not only concentrated south of Portage Avenue, south of Graham Avenue. It was coming straight up Portage Avenue to North Main Street. And it wasn't until then that I actually walked around to the other side of the building and couldn't believe what I saw emanating from the the source of this fire, Brett. It was actually unbelievable the color the thickness the density of the smoke and then of course you've got the elevator shafts which bring in hypothetically fresh air and then the smell of the smoke started to you know get into the building and it was absolutely overwhelming the smell yeah the video of the the black smoke was so intense and even this morning like as the the morning goes along here my Nose is getting a little bit more stuffed up. So that's, you know, the next day, just being downtown yesterday here, listening to Kelly Moore's 
reports uh, talking about, you know, the recommendation to stay away. And if you've got a mask, you know, if you still have an N95 mask, uh, to, to wear that if you can. That must have been just awful to be around here yesterday. Yeah, so we, of course, are going to continue this conversation throughout the morning. We'll get more into the fire and some of the reaction from City Hall at 637, not just to the the smoke and the smoke damage and the impact, but, you know, now that fire has reduced that hotel to a pile of rubble. It sat vacant for six months. How long will that rubble sit there now? When will that get cleared away? Because it's, in theory, up to the owner to pay for the costs of of the the rubble and the clear away, as I understand it. Um, it depends on the cause of the fire and all the rest. But will it sit there a mess for a while? And what are we going to do about this? I think this really hits home for people now. If you worked or li- lived downtown yesterday, you thought to yourself, now what? 843 Main Street. Been talking about that location for going on four months now. I th- think there was finally some action there in terms of getting that cleared up from that fire in February. The province halted demolition there because of asbestos in one of the buildings and the concern over that. So if there's a concern when you're doing a controlled demolition of a building, what's the concern in a circumstance like we saw yesterday? And the, the fire fire uh, spokesperson didn't pull any punches. Like there's, there's going to be toxicity in this smoke. There's going to be asbestos. That building is built turn of the last century. It's been renovated over years. There's going to be lead in the paint, all sorts of things. You list off all the different things that you would never consciously ingest. And that's what we had in our air yesterday. Uh, But I think, Brett, that just highlights the fact that when these buildings sit vacant, we, we have to be really tough and really concerned about how are they treated? How are they concerned because not only is there safety in terms of the fire itself, but the environmental damage and the damage that it can do to our health when these things burn, I, I think is maybe under discussed. It is Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb coming up in our next segment. We'll tell you how you can win bomber tickets for the 29th when the Argos come to town at 7.05. We're doing our small town salute at 7.05 instead of 7.35, as we typically do on Thursdays, because who are we talking to, Loren, at 7.35? Well, it was a couple of weeks ago. We did the, we get let the, our listeners give a shout-out to the small towns that they may have visited this summer, the places that they went out of their way to go to or stop at, and that had someone call in about how his family now has a tradition of always going to source. They always take the same picture every year on the swinging bridge. And then he mentioned something that both you and I didn't even know existed. It was about going for digs for certain types of rocks, like gemstones. And then our guest that's coming up at seven texted in and just said, by the way, did you know that that's the home of one of the largest pits like it, agate pit in uh, North America and et cetera, et cetera. And we thought, well, that's our next small town salute. And the the other day we were mentioning the peacocks on peacocks on Crescent Drive. You got to be careful how you say that, Mackling. Uh, One of my friends said, Suris is also famous for it's peacocks That's wandering right. around town. So there we're connecting multiple <laughs> conversations at 7.05 this morning. All right. So in the meantime, let's talk about what happened yesterday in downtown Winnipeg, which was overtaken by smoke and toxic fumes as the 120-year-old Windsor Hotel went up in flames late yesterday morning. Obviously an historic 
building so many stories tied to that building. But to, you know, today we're unraveling the idea of what happened with the smoke yesterday. We could see and smell the smoke from inside here on the 30th floor at 201 Portage. The building Windsor Hotel had been vacant since the spring when it was closed due to health and safety concerns. And as Global's Tegan Rasha explains, it has now been reduced to rubble. We don't know if anybody was in there. We didn't send crews in to check. The fire had already advanced beyond uh, what we would do as an offensive fire. We went strictly defensive. Parts of the building collapsing during the firefight, damaging vehicles parked below. The Windsor Hotel is an old building and highly combustible as floors and walls are made of wood. Any building that's uh, built prior uh, to the 50s and 60s has got uh, chemicals, asbestos, things like that, light fish, paints, all of that in the building. Uh, the fire itself, as things are burning, produce more toxic, uh, but uh, more toxic gases. A woman who works across the street says she called in the fire and crews arrived within minutes. Flames were coming up the back and uh, then, yeah, just every once in a while, pockets would come through windows of flames, and it's, I just hope nobody was in there. I know it was vacated, but people were still going in. The building was vacated in the spring due to health and safety concerns. Marion Willis, founder of St. Boniface Street Links, says older hotels like the Windsor can serve as a good housing resource for those who might otherwise be unsheltered when they're in operation. That there needs to be funded intensive case management teams that are located in these very high-risk buildings. That's how you ensure that the people can live there safely. The fire was deemed under control about 2.30 Wednesday afternoon. When contacted by Global News, the owner of the hotel had no comment. The cause of the blaze is under investigation. Tegan Rasha, Global News. So Greg, you mentioned we could smell the smoke up in our building and when you went down at lower level, it was really intense. I could smell it for the rest of the day in my hair. And again, we're several blocks to the north. In some buildings around us, it was so bad, people were sent home. A listener who was in the Paris building, which is just right next to us on Notre Dame, said they were evacuated, go home. You know, it's too much, it's too intense. Some offices in the exchange did the same, some staff at City Hall. Uh, Fort Rouge City Councillor Sherry Rollins is the chair of the Protection, Community Services and Parks Committee. And in the hours after the fire, she told CJOB, speaking to Jim Tolf, that her primary concern was that smoke because of the risk of that building containing toxic chemicals like asbestos, among other things. But she gets that there are also many people asking again about the issue of vacant buildings. Let's say if uh, this building uh, that we know was boarded up, vacant and derelict, uh, we, we need to be much more transparent about what buildings and houses are on our risk list, Jim. And uh, this shouldn't have been the case. It should have been sufficiently boarded up. Like I said, no one should be in there. How did a fire happen? And how does a fire happen that ends up with knock-on impacts in the downtown? Like I said, employers, including my own standing policy committee, City of Winnipeg and others uh, that have to send their staff home due to a fire. So I think that is where you start to ask even more questions. Like how many buildings like that do you have that would be that age where if they do go up in smoke, what's the what's the impact on, on people's health in the surrounding area who might be breathing that in? When a building is vacated, there are rules that you have to keep it boarded up. There's, you know, you have to make sure nobody can get in. We don't know if someone got in and lit a fire. We don't know if there was, a, you know, a natural cause, electrical. We don't know. But 
there were people in and around that building yesterday who were telling our reporters they often saw people coming and going from that building who might have broken in for shelter or warmth or a place to stay or who knows what. So there's a lot of unanswered questions. But tens of thousands of people, just not to repeat that over and over again, but if you didn't care about derelict buildings or vacant buildings before, I I hope you do now. How often do we ask the question, what does it take for people to pay attention to an issue? And often the answer, unfortunately, is when it impacts them directly. And there will be people who live not too far from where we're broadcasting right now who will say, we've been saying this for years the concern about vacant buildings. We've been saying for years the concern when these buildings burn, the impacts on our health in our neighborhoods, on our animals, on our on our persons. There are people listening right now who say, we've been dealing with and watching abandoned buildings that were supposed to be secured and free of people entering them at all hours of the day and night for years, we've been having this discussion and nobody is listening to us. Well, maybe now we'll start listening because I also have a huge concern as the economy is, is changing and the uses for different structures and buildings in our community changes. You might have, you might have some pretty valuable buildings that are left partially or completely vacant in the interim and what are we going to do to ensure that those buildings don't have the same have the same uh, end of life as we saw with the Windsor Hotel i don't know what value that building had ultimately had it been saved uh, had it been renovated i'm sure there are some who who will say mm, probably not the worst thing in the world, but there are structures that uh, it would be absolute travesty if they were lost to fire. And the cleanup now, Brett, I said to you, I drove past there this morning. It's now a big pile of rubble, rubble with a fence around it. Yeah. Does it sit like that forever? Like Rennie texted in this morning to say there was a building that was reduced to a pile of rubble on Sherbrooke two years ago. And that pile of rubble still sits there. So come on. Are we going to leave that like that in the downtown? What's the name? What's the name of the texture? Rennie texted about an apartment block on Sherbrooke Street. It's a pile of rubble that it's been like that. And he says it's a blight to an already depressed neighborhood. I drove through Rennie, Manitoba just a few weekends ago. And that hotel bar, yeah, it, uh, it burnt down. That rubble still sits there on the highway in Rennie, Manitoba. So this is an issue in a lot of places. It is Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb. You may have seen this story in the last couple of days uh, that the uh, the common decongestant pills, the ingredient, phenylephrine, is apparently, it doesn't work. It's like a dummy pill. (laughs) So the things like Sudafed, cold pills, some Benadryl, they say that 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 ingredient in particular doesn't really work. Um, okay. So in the meantime, you can read more on that at globalnews.ca, but that got Loren thinking about home remedies. Well, you take these pills because you might trust that they're going to do something, but you, there's also lots of us, at least in my family, where you would do things because it was just the home remedy and then you thought it worked and whether it did or it was a placebo maybe effect, we would do all sorts of stuff. And I've been going down, like I've been laughing so hard this morning because a few months ago, my kids had sore throats. I tried to get them to do a mixture of baking soda and salt like a gargle, 
That was popular in my family. I don't know if anyone else did I've that. I've done the salt water. The salt. Yeah. It was, salt. We, we put baking soda, right? So the same thing Oops. I cleaned my sink drains <laughs> with. Okay. <laughs> just, just putting it in perspective. And then I was just telling Brett off air that my dad, we, we had cattle growing up. And if you had a cut, he would rub the stuff on your cut. And it was stuff that was for the cows. But it worked really well on your skin because thicker skin. I don't know. So you'd have cow grease on you. And then my grandma used to do this thing. We, she called it goose grease. And if you had a sore throat or a cold or you were stuffed up instead of Sudafed or whatever, she would warm up a towel and rub this stuff on your neck. And for years, I thought it was the grease from a goose until I realized it was Vicks VapoRub. Well, here, can I jump? I thought, I thought she was like killing a goose and there's like, you know, big jar of this magical elixir. It this and- a surprising cooling effect. <laughs> can I that jump in great. here with the help of Joe Coy? My mom cured everything with Vicks VapoRub. Yeah, there you go. Vicks VapoRub. My grandma too. When we were sick, just slop on the Vicks VapoRub on your feet and put on a pair of socks. Put it on your neck, put a towel around your neck, throw you in bed, see you in 24 hours. Did you think there was a dead goose in the fridge? There though? Because was that's no, what was going on in my mind. There was mind. no reference to a dead goose <laughs> in, my, in, my, in my nanny's house, no. So we want to ask you at 204-780-6868, do you have any home remedies or have there been any home remedies in your family? Like you, did your parents have a trick or did your grandparents have a trick? Uh for when you weren't feeling all that great. 204-780-6868 for a chance to win bomber tickets for September 29th. Cameron Poitras, what you got? Well, uh, according to my grandfather, um, uh, the reason why you're sick is because you didn't eat, and the reason why you're still sick is because you're not eating. <laughs> okay. And that's the that's it. You don't need to know anything else. Just eat. Just eat. He'd sit there, slurp it on a bowl of soup, and say, you're sick because you're not eating. <laughs> Which I think might be some sort of Hutterite remedy or something like that that he had. But that's it. That's it. You're sick. It's because you're not eating. And the reason why you're still sick is because you're not eating. Well, like a starve a cold, feed a fever. And then other people go feed a fever, starve a cold. And it's so a, maybe it, 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 it really ultimately ends up to be the same advice cap. Yeah, it's, it's also a blanket policy, too. There's no, like, stomach ache. I can't hold anything down. Well, it's because you're not eating. Well, this reminds me of the wine before beer, you're in the clear. And then people go, no, beer before wine, and you'll do just fine. And it's like, which is it, which people? Is it? Oh, I've never heard the wine one. I know the beer and liquor. If you drink mm-hmm. too much, you're going to get a hangover. Yeah, basically. <laughs> <laughs> They're all stupid. But the feeding thing. When you said starve a fever, feed a cold, yeah. and I was like, isn't it feed a fever, starve? Like, which one is the it? The point is you can you, you can do whichever one you want to justify your own actions and your own philosophy. So it, it, that's just what it boils down to. Sarah, you got one? I do, yeah. This would hopefully cure a hangover if you have a headache. Um, my mom would use, like, peppermint extract. Don't ingest it, but put it on, like, your temples and, like, your neck and, like, different pressure points. And it, it does. It relieves it. And peppermint now I just, extract? But now I use an oil. Like, now there's, like, the oils on the market, like, peppermint oils. And it just soothes so well. And it helps with congestion, too, I find. Like, just under your nose a little little tiny bit. Really? I, I think it helps. I do. And maybe it's a placebo effect. I don't know. But that's but the point. Like, <laughs> if it makes you feel better. Yeah, and then I don't have to take Tylenol or whatnot. So Yeah, because that's yeah. the thing with these decongestants. They're saying, like, they, it, it works to make yeah. you feel better, but mm-hmm. it doesn't really do anything, apparently, to yeah. actually decongest you. Like, when I take a... The only time I take... Because Benadryl has a couple of ingredients, mm-hmm. and I think it works, but when I take Benadryl, I only take it if that's, like, I don't have to do anything. Because yes. it, it will essentially put me into a daze. 
So I actually do feel kind of better. Um, yeah, because I'm, you're high on something. You're not feeling anything at all, man. <laughs> Hepped up on the goofballs. That's right. Forte, what about you? I don't know if it's uh, much of a remedy, but something I love to do when I'm not feeling well, I like to have a nice hot bath, you mm. know, get some Epsom salts in there, get uh, oh. a little... Uh, Bubble bath. Such an old soul. Wow. <laughs> yeah. You know what? I set up my iPad. I watch a little movie while I'm in there. Just take it easy. I thought you were going to say you knit while you're in there. Have a pepperoni stick. Do you have a rubber ducky? No, I wish I did. I do I do have a, a pillow, though. I got a bath pillow. A bath <laughs> pillow? Yeah. You got to relax your head. Just take it easy, man. I love rubber it. ducky. Do you have a selection one. of movies that you watch while you're in the bath? Uh, something more that I'm going to laugh to that can turn my mind off. One of our listeners says their mom <laughs> rubbed brandy uh-huh. on their back chest if they had oh. a cold. They also used Vicks, but brandy, like the alcohol, would be warmed up. Can you imagine that kid going to school the next day just <laughs> reeking out of brandy? Like <laughs> I love it. That sounds, sounds like a waste of the brandy as well. <laughs> so 204-780-6868, do you have home remedies for a chance to win bomber tickets. We're going to pick a winner at 9.15. This is for the big game coming up on September 29th against Toronto. Of course, the Bombers are in Hamilton this weekend, but then they host the Toronto Argonauts on the 29th. Time for our small town salute. And yes, we are doing our small town salute a little earlier than usual. Normally it's at 7.35. But again, leader of the NDP, Wab Canoe, will join us in that time slot. So we're moving this up this week and we will be following up on something that one of our listeners brought to our attention, Loren, while pointing to Soros, Manitoba. Yeah, so a couple of weeks ago on August 31st, we asked you about your small town summer adventures. And listener Jason Flood told us about the Sewers Agate Pits and how it's an annual tradition for his family to head there. We hadn't even heard about them. And that's when our next guest weighed in because he knows a thing or two about this stuff. We welcome to the studio Jeff Wozni, president of the Manitoba Geological Society. Morning, Jeff. Morning, guys. How are you doing? I'm good. Am I saying that right? Agate? Agate, yes. Okay. For those who don't know, and I am one of them, despite having learned about all the layers of rock in grade four, <laughs> what is agate? Agate is, uh, it's a volcanic rock, uh, millions of years old. Uh, it's a, basically, what if you look at it, it looks like melted glass. Um, it's very waxy to the touch. And the cool thing about agates is if you shine a light in it, it actually glows. The light will actually shine. I, I, oh, cool! I, I haven't uh, mastered the concept of radio, so I actually brought visuals. But uh, I'm, and, I'm and holding. You just a, pulled out a rock, right? Yeah, and, it's. I have an agate here, and I, I put the just a regular flashlight underneath the agate, uh, and the uh, it glows. It's for, like a jack o' lantern. Yeah, the the light actually goes completely through the rock. That's how you wow. know you have an agate. Are they different colors, or can be, or because yours that was yellowy when you yep. shone the light. Ag- there's agates all over the world. So uh, Minnesota, Duluth area, there's Lake Superior agate. South Dakota has Fairburn agate. And each is unique. The uh, Lake Superior agate has banding in it or, or lines. Um, Souris is pretty bland, just like the rest of Manitoba. But uh, it's there's still agates. And it's, <laughs> it's, it's a unique location. Uh, there's geologists that go and scientists from all over the world to visit the agate pits because it's so unique. So the these Suris agate pits, um, like, is this one of the biggest deposits there is? I don't know if I'm if that's yep, the right yep. term. So millions of years ago, when the ice age came and the glacier kind of scraped the surface of the earth, it kind of dumped everything right there, 
And not only is it agate, but there's all sorts of different types of rocks and minerals. There's even mammoth tooth, mammoth teeth that have been found. Mm. Um, ancient horse teeth that have been found there. There's petrified wood. There's a whole range of of stuff. That's why I love to go. In fact, I'm actually going out there this weekend. I'm going on Sunday to do my final dig of the year. So lots of people collect rocks. Many of us are fascinated by Earth's history. What can we learn about Earth's history through agate? Like as you shone that, that light through the agate, I'm thinking, have people ever seen insects or these teeth or anything trapped inside um, you, the agate? Probably I, personally, not. I haven't. I haven't seen any images of that, but I know that uh, there's also another uh, form of rock called amber. You might have heard of amber. Uh, basically, it's petrified tree sap, and there are there have been cases of flies and mosquitoes. I think that was the basis of Jurassic Park, yeah. right? Yeah. 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 Creighton, that was a story there. So I was just curious about nope. that. So where else have you gone? Where, you mentioned uh, Duluth, and you were telling me a story off air about being in South Dakota and, and how serious um, builders and developers have to take discovery yeah, of, of cer- certain things, right? You know, un- unfortunately, in Manitoba, like so uh, we have the Suris Agate Pits, which is the local gravel pit, so they take material, they crush it up, use it in roadbeds. Stonewall, north of the city, is full of limestone. It's full of fossils. But because there's such an abundance of it and we need the material, they just simply crush it up. So it's not uncommon to look in your backyard, in your carport, and and find shell fossils millions of years old because it came from Stonewall. But yeah, uh, there's so much history that's that's out there. You just have to look for it. As we speak, you're recording for your YouTube channel. Yep. I'm curious what else we'd see there. What what else could we learn? Uh, where on my YouTube channel yeah. or on? Uh... I don't. I don't mean. Am I going to turn it on just see me there because the camera's. <laughs> I mean, what, what else are you talking about on there? Um, well, um, we, we talk about not like rocks and minerals, uh, my collecting trips. Uh, I was just in Thompson last week doing some stuff for work, but I got to go around and poke around some old abandoned mines up there in Thompson. Brought back about three pails full of samples that I still have to clean up and catalog and photograph. Um, is there any grass in your backyard or is it just rock? No, it's, it's, it's all rock now. <laughs> no, uh, in fact, I got rid of the grass about five years ago because I was tired of cutting it. There you go. For real? For real. Oh, boy! And what's the name of your channel? It is Outdoor Adventures Canada, education for the great outdoors. And before we let you go, you would, on our text line, for years we've known you because that's how you signed your text as the great and powerful Wazoo. <laughs> Curious to know how long you've been known as that. Um, I, I think actually, uh, I think, uh, Mr. Mackling there actually gave me that moniker, uh, back when we first started oh, yeah? talking. So, uh, yeah, he actually, and then I just kind of took it on because yeah, I like it. It's cool. And, and Greg's cool too. I'm remembering that now. <laughs> yeah. Waz was one of our, uh, star traffic reporters. Uh, when I would fill in for Brian Barkley in the, in the traffic cruiser, Waz was always giving us some of the best traffic tips. And so when you have the best traffic tips, you need the best nickname. Now so, we know. Now we know. <laughs> and he also has the best rock tips. So the sewers pits, before we let you go, Jeff, um, this is open to, like, you can go there as members of the public, as Jason told us, you can go and, and collect some stuff to bring home. Is it open? I guess it's only open during the summer. No. Uh, well, just quickly, what, what you need to do is you need to contact the Suris Rock Shop. You can Google them. Uh, just simply Google Suris Rock Shop. They're right in the center of town. And you actually need a permit. It's a privately owned pit, so you need a permit to go in and collect. And, and I would suggest calling first 
uh, just simply because this time of year, um, just to make sure that uh, Frank, the owner, is uh, is around to guide you through and get into the pit. Jeff Wozni is the president of the Manitoba Geological Society, teaching us a little bit more about the Suris Agate Pits. Jeff, thank you so much for coming in, and thanks for you brought donuts. Thank you for that. Appreciate it. All the best. At 20.7%, Manitoba has the second highest child poverty rate in the country. And Brett, because so many kids grow up in poverty, they face a future of worse physical and mental health outcomes compared to their more advantaged peers. Every Tuesday and Thursday this month, we're speaking to the provincial leaders about their plans to tackle some key issues in this province. And today, we want to focus on child poverty. We're joined now by NDP leader Wab Canoe. Good morning, Wab. Hey, good morning. Thanks for having me back. You bet. A lot of campaigns focus on the first 100 days in office. If elected, what are some of the first steps your government would take to reduce child poverty? Well, I think we have to look at the education system for a big part of uh, what needs to happen to improve things for more kids in Manitoba here. And I think one of the measures to help with child poverty that we can put into the school system at the K-12 level is a, is a school nutrition program that's accessible to people across the province. Right now, we have so many kids, unfortunately, who are growing up in poverty. And if we bring in this school nutrition program, not only is it going to make more kids uh, be in a position where they're ready to learn, it's also going to give them another reason to show up to school. You know, I've seen firsthand... When you have a meal program at a school or community center, some of these young people that we're really trying to reach and, and turn things around for, they'll show up. They'll show up to get that meal. They'll show up to get a breakfast or a lunch. And if we do that and make sure that the attendance at school improves, all of a sudden we're dramatically increasing the likelihood of improving their odds of finding success over the course of their life and uh, reaching their full potential. So are you talking the breakfast program would be introduced in every school or in schools that had criteria or a threshold where the, the need was shown? I want it to be available in every school and every school division in Manitoba. Not that every child needs to participate, but that wherever there is in the province, whether it's in the city, rural, northern Manitoba, wherever you have a need, that children uh, would be able to access this meal program. Right now, there are great initiatives that, you know, local charities, local teachers, principals uh, are, are doing to undertake this work. I remember talking to the principal at Asher in high school. She shows up at 6 a.m. each day to bake muffins. You go to Dauphin, there it's the Friendship Center who's providing hundreds of meals to school kids. But I think this is such an important initiative when we're talking about not just child poverty, but education and giving young people the tools to create future success that we can't just leave it to chance or we can't just rely on the local volunteers. This is something that government should be stepping in to ensure is accessible to every child who needs it. We've looked at the costing. We can deliver this in Manitoba for about $30 million annually. And so this is something that we would want to pursue immediately to implement within uh, this this school year if we're successful in forming government. Well, I sense uh, that you... Uh that the importance of attending school in the first place is is huge yeah. with regard to child poverty. Well, what about truancy? I think we've had a cursory discussion about this in in years past, but you know how how hard do we need to work, and what are you prepared to do to make kid, make sure kids do go to school? Is that is that a focus as well? 
It absolutely is, because now all of a sudden, it's not just a conversation about child poverty. It's also about what's happening in the streets across the province. And right now, I think, you know, we've proposed, if we get in, October 3rd, let's set up a comprehensive approach to safety in our communities with a specific focus on young people. And I do think that that school nutrition program, a school meal program, is a powerful, powerful magnet to bring more young people into class. Obviously, we have to look at what's happening at home. We have to look at what's happening uh, on the family side of things. But we also need to be able to create that positive and safe learning environment for the young people at the school. And then the conversation can also extend to recreation and how do we work with broader community groups to ensure that young people are getting the full spectrum of what it means to be uh, living a positive life, a contributing life here in Manitoba. But for me, it really starts with making sure the school system is strong and that we have a powerful tool to ensure that more young people have a reason to show up and then consequently learn and then be put on that path that's going to make not only their their minds expand, but it's also we know from the, the data, the science, the evidence shows us that when young people pursue education, the health over the rest of their life improves, their income improves over the course of their lifetime, and consequently everyone in Manitoba is going to be better off when more young people have those uh, those better opportunities. So that's looking ahead. Looking back just to this week and beyond, the Provincial Liberal mm-hmm. Party they said that they would return that $340 million in federal child benefits that were taken by governments for more than a decade. And just for our listeners' understanding, that money was part of a program where checks were sent to agencies that care for kids in care, much like the child benefit check. And in 2006, the former NDP government started clawing it back, saying that it made sense because they were already paying for kids in care. The Conservatives continued that practice until 2019, and now a court has ruled that whole process was wrong. So would your government, your party, if elected to government, commit to returning that money? Well, as you say, the, the, the court has already ruled here. So I think we're going to have to take our direction from the courts and just see that process through its logical conclusion. There is another benefit program in Manitoba that I think we need to look at, however, and that's the prenatal benefit. This is a specific program that's available to pregnant women in the province that I think could really move the needle here. And this is something that's actually very cost effective. So the prenatal benefit was brought into place because, unfortunately, Manitoba, in addition to child poverty, we we have a real challenge with overall health uh, for infants and for toddlers in the province. And this program was brought in to help alleviate the concerns around low birth weight, which is one of the big factors in that health challenge we're seeing with really young people in Manitoba. And this prenatal benefit improved birth weight in our province. You know, government can't do everything, but this initiative in particular actually moved the needle. It's been studied. It's been proven to improve health outcomes for Manitobans. And so one of the things we would like to do as part of this conversation on child poverty is to double the prenatal benefit, which would only cost $2 million a year. So for $2 million a year, we could move the needle again to ensure that more young people in Manitoba are on a path to seeing success and uh, to reach their 18th birthday. Our guest this morning, if you're just tuning in, is NDP leader Wab Canoe as we discuss child poverty today on CJOB on the election front. And Wab, Manitoba's provincial child benefit is just under $420 annually per child. Other provinces Mm -hmm. with lower child poverty rates give out more than $1,000. Would your party make a change here? Yeah, I think we need to look at that. And I think that, you know, the prenatal benefit that I'm talking about is certainly a step in that right direction. And then I think the other thing that I want to 
mentioned, and this is certainly going to be on the minds of all your listeners anytime you bring up poverty, is homelessness. And unfortunately, as part of the homelessness situation in Winnipeg and in other centers across the province, whether it's Brandon or Thompson, that are dealing with this, we see children, we see moms with kids out on the streets. So our party has made a commitment to end chronic homelessness in our province. It's going to take time. This is not an easy undertaking. We think we can do it in eight years, but we want to set the expectation of six weeks. By the time someone has been out for six weeks, that we will have connected them with housing and then the addictions and mental health and other supports so that they can actually stay in that housing. And as we make this commitment, I want to say and just explain to yourselves and to your listeners that this commitment to ending chronic homelessness has to start with women and children. We have to go out and find the kids who are on the street first and stabilize the situation for them. I think we all want to do better than what we see in the bus shacks and under the bridges in Manitoba right now. But let's start with the kids. Let's get the kids off the street. Let's get them into housing. Let's try and figure out what's going on with the addiction side, the family side, and then take it from there. And I think that at the end of the day, not only is this going to help children, not only is this going to help improve the outcomes for our province, but after a few years of this initiative, maybe when you go downtown to a Jets game or a concert, all of a sudden we're feeling proud of uh, downtown Winnipeg and uh, what our province is all about. I do have a lot of questions about how you might put this plan into place, but we are going to talk about housing and homelessness in the weeks ahead as one of our key issues. And so I just, it does connect though to my following question. And and just for the listener's sake, we will be following up on your promise there. But, you know, we also talk about kids who age out of the system, who might've been in CFS, who might've been in foster homes. And when they turn 18, with the exception of some special circumstances, they basically have to go out on their own. And a lot of them, not a lot, but a good chunk, end up back on the streets. And so is there a plan to change how we address that? Because kids in the system just end up in a different kind of system if they age out and don't have a place to go. It's a very important point, and it's one of the things that needs to get addressed if we want to get a handle on homelessness. And here I'll return to education again. When I Before politics, I worked at the University of Winnipeg uh, where we created this program called the Tuition Waiver Kids in Care Program. Long name, but the idea was very simple. If you were coming out of the child welfare system as a young person, we would cover your tuition and we would cover your books and we would ensure that there was support there for your cost of living so that you could go to post-secondary. And this is something that really, really moved the needle. I remember we brought a young woman who was a participant in this program out to one of our fundraising dinners. And she was a product of the child welfare system. And she, she spoke to this crowd of like, you know, the various business people and academics and all the, you know, middle class folks who were in the audience there that day. And she spoke very bluntly. She said, four years ago, I didn't know what a PhD was. Now I'm on a PhD track. And that just, you know, it just impressed everyone in the room so much because it showed education is the key for helping people be able to step out of the generational trap that is poverty. And so for young people coming out of the child welfare system, and I will note that all the post-secondaries in Manitoba have since adopted programs like this. So you can go to a community college or a university if you're a kid coming out of the child welfare system, but it's still being supported by, by the fundraising that they do. Whereas I would argue we need to step up and ensure that young people coming out of the child welfare system, when they turn 18, have a path to post-secondary, have a path to a trade, have a path to an apprenticeship 
so that they're able to find success and join the workforce and be able to pursue that positive path that we want for every single young person in our province. Bob Canoe, thank you very much for joining us this morning. We appreciate the time, sir. Thanks for the time. We'll have much more on this throughout the day on 680 CJOB. We'll hear from more provincial leaders as we do this every Tuesday and Thursday for the next couple of weeks. We'll be focusing on one big issue on each of those days. And a reminder to check out the podcast from Richard Cloutier, The Decision Podcast. You can find that at CJOB.com along with the Promise Tracker. That's also at CJOB.com. It is Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb, a couple of special guests in studio with us. We will introduce them in a moment. But before that, on the subject of home remedies for a chance to win bomber tickets for the big game on the 29th against the Toronto Argonauts, the defending Grey Cup champions. Greg, what does Liz have to say? Good morning. Growing up, when we got a cold, my dad would make his own cough syrup. I can't remember exactly went into it, but I know there was honey. Vicks and whiskey. Yeah, there was. <laughs> and we all really liked it. <laughs> then he would take a long sock and plaster it with Vicks and wrap it around our neck. Liz says to this day, I will not wear a turtleneck. I wonder, I hate turtlenecks too, and I wonder if that's why. Because I, 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 I didn't like the, the vapor rub stuff and wrapping things around my chest. So I, I, I love the Vicks, I love the wrap, and when you have a double chin, the turtleneck is ideal. <laughs> Tell us your Just home remedies right in. for a chance to win those bomber tickets. We'll pick a winner at 9.15. Now, Harvest Manitoba has something special planned for next month to celebrate a man who is a member of the Order of Canada because for decades he tirelessly helped to lead the charge in this country in creating and keeping food banks running so no one goes hungry. So on Thursday, October 12th, at the RBC Convention Centre, Harvest Manitoba is hosting the 2023 Harvest Gala, an evening to celebrate the career and legacy of David Northcott. We are joined in studio by the Executive Director of Harvest Manitoba, Vince Barletta, and the first Executive Director of what was known then as Winnipeg Harvest, Dr. David Northcott. Gentlemen, good morning. Good morning. Did you bring food? Uh, we have donuts out there if okay, you want. Okay, we'll take donuts. <laughs> donuts will have to do, uh, David. Uh, what did you used to say? Uh, we interviewed you so many times over the years, and this is, a, you know, you used to hope for a day when you could just quit and shut down Harvest because there was no more need for it. And as we discuss child poverty today for a major election topic, the, the need for Harvest has unfortunately never been greater. What are your thoughts on that? I'm disappointed. The good thing is that there's been a a richness of people come and go from Winnipeg Harvest and Harvest Manitoba with better learning and better uh, education. Like you can't be a doctor in Manitoba unless you spend some time at at Harvest in one of our lectures. You know, so it's that piece is really good. But the sadness is we're still there. It's it's a, a community like ours shouldn't have to rely rely on food banks to feed their citizens. It's it's not right. We'll do it, and I know the challenge for government is very very difficult. And where do you put money, et cetera? But I'd like to suggest to them put more money in the bottom end of things. It's fascinating to hear you say that, you know, we're a more educated public, like a doctor would have to go get some training to understand the connection between perhaps child poverty or, or living in poverty or malnourishment and all the rest, you know, how it starts. And yet we have 
unfortunately had Vince on air, I think almost every month mm-hmm. for the last 15 months talking about the numbers. Can we just get those, Vince, in terms of the latest, looking back to last month or what your most recent data might be? Well, thanks, Loren. Our, our, uh, our high water mark that we had, unfortunately, was 22,000 households in Manitoba that visited a food bank in the month of March. Uh, we had just got our August numbers in and sad to say that we are nearly at those numbers, around 21,500 families that used the food bank in a single month. That's 47,000 people, Loren. And sorry, that's, is that not almost double? Uh, what would the numbers say a year ago or a year and a half ago? So uh, when I started at Harvest, it was two years ago this month, and it has doubled since I've joined the organization. It's up 150% since the pandemic started. And, and the sad piece is, this story is happening not just in Winnipeg, not just in Manitoba. It's happening all across Canada. So, David, it must be tough for you to hear that then. Ah, damn. You know, yeah, that's uh, it's wrong. And, you know, the numbers that go up and then, then they come down again, they go back up. And people look at them and we study it and all that kind of but, but the, the, the challenge is there's families who were living in this city that could have used that hotel that burned down, that, uh, that could have uh, been able to buy their own food and cook their own stuff if they, they had a safe, healthy place to live in. Um, it, it's, I, I, don't, I do get it like, oh, we do this and your taxes will go up. I'm willing to put my taxes up if the city and the province can truly put more money on the table. David, you hear those numbers from Vince, and I'm sure you're intimately aware of them, even though, you know, you're not the executive director any longer. You've expressed your disappointment. How does that compare to when Winnipeg Harvest first started, the, the impetus for, for Harvest, and, and who were your clients then? And, and maybe, Vince, you could piggyback on that answer and tell us who the clients are now. Sure. In, in those days, we would start, we were at about 15 thousand, twenty thousand, that it rose to about 78,000 at one time and came down again. It goes in cycles depending on the on the price of food, depending on the the, the people in in power. It's there's a move. It's not it's 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 a wave system. It's just not a straight line. Um, But the the struggle is when you give something to somebody, why do we have to put a tag on it and want to tax it back? And that I I haven't come to grips with that one yet. You know, what I, what I would say in terms of what we've seen real change in the last few years is we've seen uh, price inflation uh, over these last few years post-pandemic. Uh, we now see one in four people that use a food bank are people with jobs. And that never used to be the case uh, before at that, at that level. Two-thirds of people that visit a food bank in Manitoba are women. And more than 40% are Indigenous as well. We know that there continue to be challenges of systemic racism and lack of economic opportunity uh, in many Indigenous communities. And so many of these trends we're starting to see now as we carry on that legacy and carry on that work that, that David and others that uh, have been involved with Harvest over the decades started to build. And we, we cherish and honour that legacy as best we can as we move forward. Are we increasingly talking about working poor then, accessing the bank? Because I think years ago people had stereotype you might throw on you picture that person you imagine what it might look like and now I might not know that it's actually the person next to me maybe on the bus or in my workspace well you know we had uh, a group of monthly donors in with us earlier this week and many of them are seniors that uh, are are donors to harvest and we thank them so much but an increasing number of people that use food banks are also seniors and for so many people they're one uh, health emergency one financial emergency uh, uh, one challenge away 
uh, from not having the money to make ends meet, particularly people living on fixed incomes. And so uh, uh, we see a growing number of seniors that are living on that edge or making really difficult choices with their budget, with medications, other needs, housing, and often not getting nutritious food on their table as a result. Our guests this morning are Vince Barletta, the executive director of Harvest Manitoba, and the first executive director of what was known as Winnipeg Harvest, Dr. David Northcott. And we're discussing that Thursday, October 12th at the RBC Convention Centre, Harvest Manitoba is hosting the 2023 Harvest Gala, an evening to celebrate the career and legacy of David Northcott. And David, when we discuss your legacy... um, for example, I had the opportunity to golf with Vince at, at the recent Harvest Tournament at St. Boniface, and I got to meet some wonderful people. My playing partner uh, work, spend his, uh, spends a lot of time up north working tirelessly to ensure that the aforementioned communities Vince was discussing are fed. And um, one of the nicest people I've ever met. So that's, you know, and I imagine that Harvest Manitoba is full, filled with some of the nicest people you've ever met. Yeah. And so when and you look at that, like, is there, do you feel some, some pride in knowing that you helped to foster pride. that environment? Isn't that, um, I, I feel a, a sense of success that the voice is still strong. <clears throat> I feel uh, that there's a, a sense of, of um, justice is still got that appetite um, that uh, Harvest is involved in basic income Groups and basic income is a guaranteed, livable, basic standards benefit. Like all these words is what that means. And when the food bank is, there's only one word: is I'm hungry. We we don't have to spread it any more than that. And to be able to say the we're still there because people are hungry. And I I think that's the bad thing is that it's still there. And that's the good thing is it's still there. It's one of this odd moments. You use basic income. We talk about that a lot on air and different policies and what that looks like. Do you think we need to ask ourselves more, could you live off that? Oh, that's the question. Like, could you just just do it for, Mm. I know we do those challenges and people try it for a day, but like, let's talk, let's just do the math. Yeah. And we think about the number of people out there who are saying, I can't, I can't afford this food right now. And they're all middle income or higher earners. Yeah. So, So what, what answer... What would you like people to hear from that when you talk about basic income? I'd, I'd like to say to them, water, food, fuel, shelter. Water, food, fuel, shelter. Can you pay for those four things with the income you've got? And if you can't, then there's something wrong. Then we have to look at why the income doesn't let you do those four things. And for us, it's a, it, it keep it very simple. You don't have to do all the research and that you had do. But a person says, do I have enough money to feed my kids next week, next month? You know, school's coming. Do I have, can I get them to school with a good meal and clothing? You know, it, that's, the, 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 that's the real, and you put it really well. It's well done. It's, 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 it's transparent. Is that, has it changed? I was so grateful raising my kids. I never had to make that choice between feeding myself, my wife and I, and feeding our kids or putting diapers on our kids, those sorts of things. But I know that those were choices my parents had to make. Once upon a time. So when you look at that, Vince, and, and, and the celebration on October 12th, maybe can you wrap it all up for us and, and put it into perspective and, and let us know how we can, how we can be there to, to recognize uh, Dr. Northcott's legacy? Well, we can recognize his legacy by continuing the good work now of Harvest Manitoba, that good work of Winnipeg Harvest, thinking about those tens of thousands of Manitobans that when they go to the grocery store have... 40 or $50 in their pocket for the week to buy those groceries 
And we want to make sure that we honor the history, tell those stories. And people that are interested are certainly welcome to attend our gala uh, October 12th. Uh, at the RBC Convention Center, harvestmanitoba.ca slash gala 9823666. Get your tickets. We're about 85% sold. We've still got some tickets left. We want to make it a wonderful night for a wonderful guy, David Northcott. How do you feel, David, being honored before we let you go? I know you're a pretty I, humble guy. It, it's, I'm sort of the token hero. The, 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 <laughs> the heroes are the ones that have, for years and years and years, lived this. And and uh, and there's two indigenous women who are both passed away now, and their <clears throat> their grandkids volunteered the food bank. But over their time, they each moved a million loaves of bread and volunteering for about twenty years each. A million? Yeah. They touched a million loaves of bread to off a bulk donor that made it, and they would take that and put it into hampers. Those are the heroes, and I'm sort of, you know, <laughs> those are the heroes. The Victories Over Hunger and Poverty Gala. It's happening October 12th at the RBC Convention Center. You can get more information at harvestmanitoba.ca. It is an evening to celebrate the career and legacy of David Northcott, who was the first executive director of Winnipeg Harvest. David Northcott, thank you for joining us, sir. Thank you. And Vince Barletta, executive director of Harvest Manitoba, thank you. Thank you. Mackling McGarry McNabb, we're going to say hello to one of our favorite guests in a moment, but a reminder, last chance to try to win those bomber tickets for the 29th. Home remedies. Sandy says the best home remedy for hiccups, no booze or scare, and, and as in boo, not booze. Oh. <laughs> no boo or scares. Put a clean Kleenex over a glass of water and drink it up through the Kleenex. Come on. Presto. Hiccups are gonzo. Sandy says you are welcome. What would be the person who said, you know what I'm going to do <laughs> while I have these hiccups? I'll just try this. <laughs> I don't get I it. I feel like that can't be good for you in some, like, is the Kleenex bleached to turn white? Right. Like, there's got to be some chemical in there. I don't know. I don't knock it till you try it. Yeah, look it up, I guess. I'll try it. Don't try this at home until you've researched it. In the meantime, we'll pick a winner at 9.15. Now, as we head towards the provincial election, Global News and 680 CJOB are digging into the issues which impact our community the most. So we've been focusing on child poverty, how we manage it, how we reduce it, what are the impacts? And of course, Greg, how do we break that cycle of poverty? Well, many would argue one of the keys to breaking any cycle is education. Our next guest has made it her mission to make Canadians feel good about money. She spent 15 years as a personal financial educator and over a decade as a financial professional. And she's learned that everyone has money problems. And I think this is important. That's as true for millionaires as it is for people who spend years trying to pay off their student debt. We welcome back to the start, Kelly Keene. Good morning, Kelly. Good morning, Greg, Brett, and Loren. Great to be with you guys. On Tuesday, we discussed affordability in this difficult for many economic climate. Today, our focused discussion is child poverty. Is financial literacy one way to connect the two issues, Cal? You know what? It's a start. I mean, it's certainly something I hear like from from parents, from Canadians across the country. Look, I didn't learn this in school. Why are we not teaching this in school? 
absolutely. I totally agree. But here's the thing, guys. I, I don't know about you, but I remember participation when I was growing up. Remember Hal and Joanne and and they were teaching us about how to eat and how to exercise and do all of this. So I'm a Gen Xer. I was raised with that. And yet today we have an obesity epidemic. So the education didn't work because it's not enough. Like if we're talking about child poverty, it is not enough to just educate our youth have them understand the basics of finance. Yeah, that's the basics, but we've got to go to the parents. You know, like it doesn't matter how much as a kid I was taught to eat the salad and and all of this. If you come home and your parents are serving you a burger and fries, that's what you're going to eat. So, I mean, you know, it's it's a really tough it's a tough topic and and yes, it does to answer your question start with education, but it has to be a whole family dynamic conversation, not just focused on youth. How often do, do you even just talk to people who grew up potentially in poverty and, and, are, and then they get to a point that they're, they're working to get their way out of it, Kelly, and are trying to find the tools to help them do that? Because there are people who find their way out and then there are people who never grew up in poverty and sometimes both of them yeah. are at the same spot with their, financi- their finances. Yeah. And I mean, that's the thing, like breaking the cycle of poverty, Lauren, you're so right. You obviously have more of a chance to to stay in the cycle if you were raised that way. But you're absolutely correct. It doesn't matter what your socioeconomic background was. This is a challenge for people moving forward. I mean, Equifax just came out with their new survey this morning of how many people are relying on credit cards. So it, it, it's, it's, you know, the biggest impediment to people really getting out of a tough financial situation is being brave enough to look at it because yeah, you don't have all the answers, but sometimes it's as simple as opening up your credit card statements, looking at, you know, going online, looking at your bank account, what are you being charged? You know, I hate the saying, the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. I hate that saying, but there's, there is a lot of truth to that because when people reach out to me <clears throat> that are in a lot of trouble, and I'm not a credit counselor, I, I, I don't do coaching or anything like that, but when I do sit down to help them and look at their finances, you see that, oh my God, they've got this NSF charge here and here, 45 bucks each. Now they've got an over limit charge, $29 on each of their credit cards because they're maxed out. And then, you know, you read the fine print and it says you're already paying 24% on your your credit card. But if you miss a payment, you're going to pay now 28% for the next six months. So it just adds up and adds up and adds up. And I get that when you're in this situation, you're feeling so much stress and apathy that you just don't want to even look at it because maybe there's no more money at the end of the month. But by not looking at it, by not taking charge, by not calling up your bank or your lender and saying, how do I get out of this? what options exist, it just gets worse. So as we navigate this difficult economy, Kelly, some families are making the decision to pay one bill over the other or make that late payment. Any advice on how to navigate this? Yeah. Sorry, losing my voice already this morning. I mean, again, looking at it, being proactive, calling up your lenders, being honest, like, it's not a shock to them. Like before the pandemic, it was hard to call up your bank and ask for help. Everyone knows that people are struggling. So being on top of it, if you can, 
you know, getting on the phone with your bank to see if you can get deferrals. But here's the bigger conversation, guys. It's like, if it's just about managing the debt, if it's just about trying to survive, that's all you're ever going to get. You have to ask the question, how do you thrive? Like, I love the stories of like single moms. There was one where eight of them got together. They had this four-year plan where they were all going to band together, look after each other's kids while each one went and got their certificate in something. And yeah, it was a long road and yeah, it took four years. But on the other side of that, they all had, you know, an education and they all were earning more money and they all had benefits and things of that sort. So I encourage you, if you're struggling today, look at your finances, look at what you're, you know, try to be brave and and courageous in tackling them, but also in having this larger conversation of how can you make it better? And sometimes it's a strength in numbers and that's the only way you're going to help your and help your kids get out of this situation. Kelly Keene is an expert on all things money, a professional speaker, a best-selling author, and founder of Women Claiming Wealth. And you can learn more about her at her website, kellykeen.com. Kelly, always a pleasure. Thank you for your insight. Thank you, my friends. Always great to be with you. Mackling McGarry McNabb, you got a home remedy for a chance to win bomber tickets? We've gotten so many. I'm just totally fascinated by all of this stuff because I've never would have thought of any of this. Uh, One of our runners up, Trev E., who says, early in our marriage, my wife was suffering through a cold, so I made her my special concoction of tea with lemon and honey. She drank it and felt amazingly better the next day. Now she swears by this cure. But the truth is, I had ulterior motives. She did not like any hot drinks. I was hoping to get her conditioned so that maybe one day she would drink coffee with me. It did not work. Trev, I'm with your wife on this one. I can't stand hot beverages. I would perhaps try this concoction to get over a cold, but you can keep your coffee. What if there was whiskey added to the no. tea with the hot coffee? Well, okay. The, 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 you know what? We've, with the two minutes left, let's skip ahead to uh, uh, Karen. <laughs> I didn't mean to take it there. I just was thinking maybe you'd like it better. But that actually ties in with our, our runner-up. And our winner. So, uh, Greg, you want to start with Karen, who is a runner-up? So keep in mind, this was 50 years ago. Things were different then. If a parent did this today, they'd be charged with abuse, I am sure, (laughs) Karen says. But having said that, as long as I can remember, both myself and my father suffered from bronchitis whenever we got a cold. My dad's go-to back then for both of us was cherry brandy and hot water. He always said, sleep was your best healer and after a hot cherry brandy a (laughs) six-year-old will sleep (laughs) though the years he graduated over the years he graduated to orange juice crushed cloves of garlic and four ounces of whiskey (laughs) again sleep was your best healer and after a couple of those yes Dad slept. He sweat garlic for days, eh, but he slept and he yielded. Bless his heart. He's not with us now, but the cherry brandy still works for me to this day for a drug-free cough medicine. Well, if you take some of those medicines, the cough syrups and whatnot, they knock you out. Like, there's other things in there that oh, are, I'm not yeah. condoning this the in active 2023. Could to, essentially be alcohol. It, it feels like it. Right? I'm, not, I, I'm not saying pour your child a brandy tonight if they got a cold, but I, there's a connection there. But uh, another alcohol-related remedy, Lynn is our winner. Lynn Clausen, what does Lynn have to say? I remember we had an eight-year-old cousin staying at our house while his parents were away on holiday. One evening, he told us he had a toothache. He proceeded to tell us that his mom's home remedy was he needed to 
pour some rye into a little glass, and then he would swish it around his mouth in the vicinity of his tooth. He then told my mom the bottle with the sheriff's star on it was the best rye. Needless to say, he didn't complain about his tooth afterwards. <laughs> the best uh, rye. Like, because it tasted the best or it fixed his tooth the best. Has he, has he sampled? Like, how many times did he? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Oh, and at eight, that means he's had a few different rounds. The sheriff's star. Like, how many toothaches does one even have in life, let alone? Well, I think I have a toothache right now. Uh, Excuse me for a few moments. By the way, which whiskey is that then? The sheriff's star whiskey? I think it's probably five star. Okay. Not that I know anything about whiskey. <laughs> Thank you for taking us, uh, giving us a chance to peer through time. My, how things have changed. Lynn, you are going to the Bomber game on the 29th when the Argos come to town. Our next guest joins us as he takes a job in what I feel is a particularly divisive time on this topic. Uh, So I'm really happy he's here. He's the new educator in residence at the Canadian Museum for Human Rights and will be creating content to highlight queer and trans history in communities across Canada, especially for communities where those histories are not well known. His name is Walter Cassidy. Walter, good morning. Good morning. Thank you very much for coming in to talk to us today because... uh, you know, it feels to me like education on 2S LGBTQIA plus issues are as important now as ever, because I, as, as I mentioned, there just seems to be so much pushback these days on so many fronts. So what is your initial uh, take on that pushback? Um, for me, it's about misunderstanding. Um, for As an educator, I've been teaching for, oh boy, 24 years now, uh, and I believe that edu- that students need to see themselves in the curriculum. And as a queer kid, and I'm going to date myself, in the 80s, there was no representation. And school was hell for me, absolute hell. And so um, as an educator, I, I wanted to help change that. And I think there's a big difference between um, – um, the, some of these issues are really confusing because, one, I'm also a parent. Mm-hmm. So uh, when my kid got a book that was about, you know, Johnny has two mommies or two daddies, that's representation. Simple as that. My child then felt included. And I, I think that's a beautiful thing. And I think that's what's understanding. And if I had those type of uh, stories of, of, of great people who did great things, because there's tons, uh, tons of examples. My big one I always like to talk about is John Damien. And he's actually from uh, my community in Windsor, Ontario. But he got fired uh, from his job in Toronto in 1975. And he became the the gay poster boy for the the gay liberation movement in the 70s. And there were protests all over the country, included in Winnipeg in 1976. No one knows him. What were they they protesting? Well, they're protesting that he got fired. Right. And saying this is wrong. This was a time when there wasn't any um, uh, human rights. So why was he he was fired simply because he was gay? Yes. It's actually his doctor outed him. He went to his doctor. He disclosed his sexuality and he he was a a jockey. Uh, He he worked in uh, horses and he was the doctor told the Ontario Racing Commission that he was gay and he was brought in and he was fired and he fought it. He fought it for 12 years. He lost everything, everything for that fight. Some people will look at that representation. You mentioned that book. 
about, you know, I have two mommies or I have two daddies and some people will right away go to the word grooming. You're grooming my child by making them aware that other people live lives differently. That's got to get your back up. That term has a long history for the queer community, for sure. And that's the other thing. I mean, we're talking about... So this isn't brand new, this This word. is not. And that's part of why history has to be learned, because that's something that is being... Um, we're going back to the States and uh, Anita Bryant, who mm. did come to Canada to try to get queer teachers fired, right? That was her whole uh, initiative, was to ban get openly gay teachers from education. So this is not a new subject. And to be honest, if we're talking about families, so any type of family is that problematic then? So then my family is an issue, but your family, and you say, Johnny has a mom and dad. Well, are you, that could be argued in the same way then, because it's, just, it's the same language, it's just one word that has changed. You talk about, when, and as you sit here, you've now mentioned two names that I'm going to have to read more upon because I didn't know that story. And so that just makes it very clear that your job is so crucial in, in introducing Canadians to these types of stories. Are there too many to choose from, sadly? or, or, or? Well, for me, it's about, I think there's, there's a lot. Um, queer and trans identities have always existed. We were here before, um, always been here, and was here before colonization. And so that has to be understood, and that's really important. Uh, I'm from a smaller community, so I'm not from the big three, as I call it. In, in Windsor, we normally use that term for uh, um, automotive, but I've been using it as uh, Toronto, Vancouver, Montreal. And so as smaller communities, we have a history of being disregarded. And so that's one of the things I wanted to bring forward, that there's lots of examples in other communities. And when I was a kid, the first thing I did when I was 18, when I graduated, was get out of Windsor because I thought there was no um, place for me. And I want to help change that. And I, if I just knew about, about John Damien, I would at least went, wow, okay, there was someone. And there's so many examples. The big one for me right now, the top of head in this community, is the term two-spirit. That was coined here in 1990. So every kid should know that term. Absolutely. And let's just tell people, it, remind them what it is, because there are people out there that are still learning today what, what, what different... Uh, terms and acronyms and all the rest mean. So two spirit is? Well, that's an indigenous term that some indigenous people use. Mm -hmm. um, it was created in 1990 at a gay and lesbian powwow, an international one. And, it, and because there were derogatory terms used by Jesuits historically for that community, um, what I understand is they wanted to have a term that had historical connection and, and was theirs. So that is a term that uh, some Indigenous people use. Uh, some younger people that I understand use like Indigi-queer, and, and, and it's complex because I think also um, the term has also, what I understand has changed its meaning with understandings of different complexities and going back to um, very um, old um, uh, understanders of gender and sexuality. So it really is depending on the nation and how they interpret it, as well as they, uh, many have their own words for it. And so it's kind of a, it's, it's kind of a, it has 
that aspect, but there's now looking at it as a, let's use the term that was originally used, and if you don't use that, let's use two-spirit and so on. So and it's, I love that evolution because people get their backs up about the, in, the letters. Well, historically, the words that we had were horrible, sodomite, gross indecent, unnatural. And what I understand with my my uh, research is the first time that the word gay was used to mean people of the same sex goes back to the late 1800s in the hobo culture. It's called a uh, gay cat. And then even in um, uh, Hollywood had the film Bringing Up Baby. And there's a t- and at one point, the actor in it, um, he wears this um, very... Uh, um, effeminate um, housecoat, and he says, I just woke up gay one day. So the word gay has been around for a long time, but it wasn't really adopted much later. And then what happened, so it was the gay liberation movement, and then what, what happened was the, the lesbian community, which had very different issues. In this country, if you were a parent and you came out as lesbian, you lost custody of your child. So that's a very different conversation. And so it was recognized that, okay, there are different struggles and we have to recognize those different struggles. And so the L was included. And then, of course, bisexuals, which at, at sometimes there were a lot of gay people who didn't even believe they existed. And so there was like, we have to identify it. It says, no, they exist because that's what they're going through. They're, they're completely vi- invisible. And it's just continued. And, and you know, the... the the letters change because we are understanding the complexities of our history. And the, the two ones that are added right now that people get really confused about is the A and the I. So asexual and that concept of that not actually having um, – you have a romantic interest, but not necessarily your body has a sexual interest. And then intersex, which is an identity that has been um, not seen enough because and they are gone through so much oppression, because these are individuals that, depending on their biology, um, are not very clearly defined on a binary system, are on, on in relation to sex. And what ends up happening is doctors will assume, look at their bodies, and say you're a boy, and then they go through all these surgeries without their consent because they're a little kid, and then when they become older, they they go. Okay, but I feel like a girl. But the but they've been medically changed already. So there's there's it's and that's a highlight. That is very different. The intersex community has to be highlighted. So that's why those letters are included. So before we let you run here, Walter, if we go to the Canadian Museum for Human Rights moving forward, um, where can we learn of what you'll be bringing to the table as uh, the educator in residence? Uh, well, I'm just started, so I mean, I I think that I think that's a process, okay. right? Uh, I've been asked to do ex- example. There's a touring exhibit happening in 2024 on the LGBTQ purge, um, and so I'm going to start working on uh, resources and educational supports for that. Um, um, the museum is working on uh, and always changing and always um, re-looking at w- what their exhibits are. And I think that's part of the process. And they've been wonderful to have those conversations about what's there, what needs to be there, and so on. So we're just starting those, those conversations. Well, Walter, thank you very much for coming to visit us. We really appreciate the time, and it's been great to meet you. Thank you so much.
Walter Cassidy is the new educator in residence at the Canadian Museum for Human Rights, joining us live on 680 CJOB. And uh, he knows a thing or two about uh, cheap. What's the website where you got your glasses? He's got some really <laughs> snappy glasses. He says, uh, he said, oh, I love those glasses. He's like, oh, yeah, progressive lenses, 100 bucks online. Yes. Yeah, Zenny, I think it was. Zenny. Okay. Zenny, Zenny. Zenny with a Z. All right. There you go. There's another great tip. And they're super, they're amazing, colorful glasses. Walter, thank you very much.